Welcome to the podcast of Calvary Baptist Church. We are delighted you have chosen to listen in today. It's our hope the message of Jesus will continue to spread and bear fruit, both in your life and the world around us. For more digital content, feel free to check us out on the web at calvarybcmoultrie.com. And now for today's message. broken down into four main sections. We've kind of walked through the first section and now we're going to get into the second one today. But just so you can be reminded, this warning section really has this, this flow of first a rebuke in verses 511 through 63. We looked at that last week. He's rebuking them for their sluggish hearing and he calls them to maturity. And then today we're going to see in verses four through eight of chapter six that there is a warning, a warning that those who fall away cannot be renewed. And then we're going to see in a, in a week's coming that chapter 6, 9 through 12, we see this encouragement that they will inherit the promise of God if they are confident in their hearing and obedience. And then finally, the author with such wisdom and spirit-filled grace offers assurance to these people as after he gives them this warn of that it's found in God alone. And last week we saw, right, that, that Hebrews... Stop giving instruction about the, the high priesthood of Melchizedek that Jesus was of the order of. And again, we see that. Look there again with me at 510. It says he's just got done defending the Jesus of a different line. He says, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who believe. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then he says, and about this, and this priesthood that he's referring to is why he's stopping and giving this warning. But did you notice at 620, how did he end this section? It says, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become on the high priest forever or the, after the order of Melchizedek. He's not forgetting about it. He just says, in order for you to understand this, we need to hear this warning. Both 5.10 and 6.20, they both kind of act as like brackets around this warning. Yet the author, he does stop, which is very interesting. He stops with this exhortation and explanation of who Jesus is as the high priest of Melchizedek, and he stops. He says, we cannot move forward because he saw something that alarmed him. He saw something in the people of Hebrews that concerned him greatly. Now, I don't want you to think, though, that this was something simple he was exposing. Look with me down just a little bit further in the text we'll get to in a couple weeks. Look at verse 9 and 10 with me of chapter 6. It says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. And the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints, as you still do. These people are working. These people are loving each other. These people are probably good church folk. But the author of Hebrews, when when beginning to discuss the priesthood of Melchizedek and Jesus and, and what he is as our present help, he stops because he saw something. He saw something in their life that deeply concerns him. These people were active in the past, and it seems still doing some of these things, but there's something that concerns him. One of my favorite soccer coaches growing up was a gentleman who moved from England to the United States. Um, He moved from England to the United States and began to serve um, at an engineering firm in, in Ocala, Florida, of all places. And he was my soccer coach, and I loved this soccer coach because he knew soccer inside and out. He knew it so well that he could see things about the game before it even happened. 
He could see things about me as a player. I remember there was one time, like, I just, I mean, I was, I was 13, I believe, when he was my coach, 13 and 14. And there was a time where I was known to have a very powerful shot. I could kick it hard. You know, I could rip it. I mean, I could just tattoo a ball and, and all these kind of things. So that's all I would do. I would just run up and I'd forget everything because muscle memory, and I would just be in a tattoo balls and, and I was scoring goals. Every game, I'd score at least one or two goals. And then after I just had one of my best games, I had a hat trick. You know what a hat trick is? I scored three goals in a game. I'm like, dude, I'm awesome. My coach comes up to me. He goes, Josh, I'm very concerned about something. I'm like, what are you talking about, coach? Concerned about something. I just scored three goals. I'm like, I'm, I'm on fire. He goes, but I'm noticing something about your plant foot. Plant foot. For you don't know what plant foot is, it's just the, put, the foot that's opposite that you kick with. So it's the foot on your, if I'm a right first, so if it's, I'm shooting with my right foot, it's my left leg. He says, I noticed something about your plant foot. You're getting more and more to the side, more and more to the side, more and more to the side, and you're leaning into the right. I'm like, well, dude, I just I scored three goals. Why are you worried about my plant foot? But this coach, he had such a keen eye for the game and such a keen eye that he saw something that was about to become destructive in my shot. He saw it before I even knew it. I was in the middle of scoring massive amounts of goals and the coach saw something and spoke to it before it even would begin to be devastation. And just like this coach, the author of Hebrews in this section, it is with a keen eye, he's speaking to a people that are working and loving the saints. And he says, but I see something that could bring about destruction in the life of you. And he's speaking into this very moment. And that's why I've loved Hebrews, because it's filled with clues that to develop a keen eye for God's people about mistakes that are coming. And like a master coach, the author is warning the people of something he sees quickly approaching. In Hebrews, guys, it's a book designed for God's people to build confidence in Christ, to bolster our assurance in him. But in order to bolster our assurance in Christ, here's what he has to do. He has to expose where you have false assurance. Where you have false assurance. And that's what he's doing in these warning passages. He's using these warnings throughout the book to show us that our faith cannot be merely passive knowledge of Christ. But it must be active daily engagement with his past, present, and future work. And we'll get to all that when we get to Melchizedek in a little while. Again, we're not looking at this warning as spectators. I don't want you to say, well, this is so and so. The point of this warning is for you to be warned. For you to look at intently your own walk and pursuit of God and say, is this me? And Hebrews, just like my soccer coach, is allowing us to identify things in our life that could be destructive. And we saw last week, right? The author began to rebuke the people for their immaturity. That they weren't growing in the faith. And this is they had become dull of hearing or sluggish in their understanding of God's word. And this dull of hearing... We saw in chapter 5 at the end there that it has to do with they have no daily discernment of obedience. See, maturity of faith, sure, it can teach others. But just because you're teaching others doesn't mean we're mature. What's interesting is Hebrews is making the argument, mature people in the faith walk wisely every day. That they have a discernment about them that's been put into practice every day so that they can discern between good and evil. So let's put this all together. Or maybe let me say this in another way. Immature Christians may have a wealth of doctrinal awareness. 
but they cannot put it to practice in their daily lives. So, we can see here that simply knowing Scripture, knowing doctrines, but not knowing how to put them into practice is a sign of your lack of growth. Let me give you an example. I love the sovereignty of God. It's probably my favorite doctrine to think about and to pontificate upon. All right? It's just I love this, the sovereignty of God. But I think sometimes when we first grasp the sovereignty of God, we use it like a hammer. We use it like a hammer to shatter people. Or we use it like a hammer to say, well, you're going through a hard time? Well, do you believe in the sovereignty of God? And we just, poof, we just beat them upside the head with the sovereignty of God. And that's not a discerning spirit. That's someone who knows doctrine and is just simply wielding it around like it's this thing that... But no, he's saying someone who understands the sovereignty of God knows that I'm an emotional being. I have emotions and I'm going to react with grief. I'm going to react with hardship. I'm going to react in difficult times. And the sovereignty of God, what it tells me is that it frees me from getting angry, from becoming bitter. It says, he's my refuge. He's my place I run to. It's not just a, a hammer that I throw around. It changes the way we counsel people. And he's telling these people, you're not that. You just simply have this superficial knowledge, but you're still immature because you don't know how to apply those doctrines in your everyday life. It doesn't affect the way you love your spouse. It doesn't affect the way you think of your children or how you handle your money. You are immature because you're still making unwise decisions between that which is good and evil. And Hebrews has been, he just rebuked these people for this problem. And now, in chapter 6, chapter six, verses 4 through 8, he moves into a warning. And we need to ask several questions about this warning. Let's read it again. We're going to focus our attention now on verses 4 through 8. It says, For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and who have tasted of the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and they have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance... Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own arm and holding him to contempt. For the land has drunk of the rain, for the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and it produces crop useful to those for the sake it is being cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and it is in the end to be burned. Wow. This is a warning passage, and we have to ask this passage several key questions. First thing we need to understand, what's the warning? What's the warning in this text? Here's the warning. If you look at the beginning of verse 4 again, it is impossible, and then you move down to verse 6, for those who have fallen away to be restored to repentance again. This is the warning. It is impossible for those who have fallen away to be restored to repentance again. So we have to ask ourselves, who are the those he's referring to? Who are those in this passage? And what's interesting is at the beginning, right, we see the word for, and it connects back to the, the call to maturity. The overarching call of this warning is begin to mature. Be mature in the faith. Why? Because if you're not maturing, then you are prone to begin to drift away from God and will fall away. And those who fall away cannot be restored. Do we see the flow of the argument? Rebuke. You're, you should be teachers by now, but you're not. Grow up into maturity. Why? Because those who fall away, it's impossible for them to be restored once again to repentance. 
Wow. That is a strong, strong warning that we must begin to understand. And the exciting thing about this section, and yes, I say exciting, is that it pushes back against our modern assumption of where assurance of salvation is found. I believe there is an epidemic that is worse than Corona. And it's the epidemic that the church is offering out assurance like it's candy. We may often hear things like this related to someone's security about their statement. Well, I'm good. I've been baptized. Or I'm good. I prayed a prayer of repentance when I was, insert age. Yet I love this text because here's what this text is doing. It's looking at the person who says, well, I go to church and I know aspects of the gospel. I'm good. And this text says, no, you're not. That there's more to faith than showing up and just knowing the elementary doctrines of the faith. Assurance is found through growth, maturity, confidence in who he is and what he's doing in us. And I love this text because it presses in to you who are sitting here right now. And this text pushes against the idea that we can say I'm good as long as I know a few biblical truths and I show up to church. It's saying that is a false assurance. Do not place your hope there. So may we all listen today and not just simply, oh man, I wish so-and-so was here, but we need to ask ourselves, you, right now, as we hear this warning, you need to ask yourself, is this warning for me? So what are the questions we need to ask? First, who is being addressed in this warning? Look there again with me. In verse 4, for it is impossible, and we could say for those who have fallen away. Who's the those there? Are these people who are like almost Christian? Like they're almost believers. They're, they're, they're kind of on the edge. They've had some spiritual experiences and, but do not have the Spirit of God. This is one way this is explained that these are almost Christians. And so the point would be then, if this was the case, examine yourself, make sure you're a genuine believer. And I don't think that's what the author of Hebrews is doing here. I don't think that's why. I would make the argument that this text is intended, and he's speaking to believers who have the Spirit of God. Here's why I think that. Look there with me again at verse 4. First, if, actually, first look at verse 1 of chapter 6. He says, therefore let us... Right? This is an all-inclusive pronoun. He's including even himself in this language. So he's not just saying, all right, all you guys wagging his finger. He's saying, let us... Move on and grow into maturity. Let us be warned. He's including himself in this language. So would he lump himself into the category? He goes, I'm not really too sure of my faith. I think I'm saved, but I'm not sure. No. No, he is speaking to spirit-filled people. And he's been speaking to brothers and sisters and the saints and the church and he calls them. So the natural reading of this would be that he is speaking to the same people right now in this warning. He is speaking to believers. And he's warning them. But not just that. Look at the way he describes these people in verse 4 and 5. He does it with a fourfold explanation of who they are. He says, For it is impossible in the case of one who once have been enlightened... 
This is speaking, I believe, of that moment of conversion, right? We can know from other sections of Scripture that we are darkened in our mind and our understanding. But God, by His Spirit, does what? Awakens, enlightens us. And even Hebrews. Look at Hebrews. I want you to show, and I want you to let the text defend itself. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. He uses the same word, enlighten, and we need to ask ourselves a question. So look at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 32. Again, he's, uh, this is the ending section. We're going to get here. This is probably one of my favorite sections of the whole thing. Because this is the end of the Melchizedekian argument he's making. And he says here in verse 32, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured hard struggles with suffering. And he's speaking about what? Believers. Same word, same language he's using here at the end of verse 4. Once have been enlightened. So the question is, can you be enlightened but only partially? Now again, we, we, we gotta do some thinking that there are times, yes, in other locations, people are like, well think of the, the parable of Jesus in the sores, or the soils, right? The soils. You had some of the soils who, who birthed, but then it didn't produce because the root wasn't down, or the sufferings or the cares of this world, all these things. And yes, that's a reality. We know that's a, an illustration to help us with numerous things. But here, in this context, he's been using the word enlightened for those who have the Spirit. Why would he change so for just one spot? Not only that, we could keep going. It says, those who have tasted of the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit. But ding I mean, there's like the trigger word right there. What makes a believer a believer? The Spirit of God. Right? The, the new covenant, the reason the new covenant is the new covenant is because the Old Testament people could not follow God's ways. Could not follow God's laws. Why? Because they still had a hardened heart. And the beauty of the new covenant is that God, after he sent his son to purchase, redeem, and seal us, the spirit descended to produce the church, to create in us good works and obedience, delight. And it says they've shared in the Holy Spirit. So is he going back Old Testament? You know, like when the spirit would descend on the judges for a little bit, they would go do some mighty work and then the spirit would leave. Is that what he's doing? No, we're in the New Testament era. Once the Spirit descends on someone, does it depart from them? No. He's speaking to Christians. We could even say this word taste that we see in the end of verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5. They, they've tasted of the heavenly gift. They've tasted of the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. Because I've heard this argument. Here's the argument. Well, I can taste something without eating the whole thing. So this is like a partial word taste, right? Like I could taste the hamburger without eating the whole hamburger. But let's ask ourselves this question. This same word is used in chapter two and verse eight. I want you to look at this. This is important for us to understand. Two fourteen. excuse me. Speaking of Jesus here, it says this, since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps. The same word there, that he shared in this spirit. Was it a partial sharing? No. We can also look a little further where it says that he tasted death for everyone. Did Jesus partially taste our death or the whole thing? Did he eat the whole thing? Did he only halfway become dead? No. He died what? Completely. So, so we know who he's speaking to here. 
I would make the argument and test the thoughts of my heart here and the meditations of my mind that he is speaking to Christians. He's speaking to indwelt people who have the Spirit of God and he's warning them. And the reason this is so important is because it doesn't allow you right now to turn your ears off. You have to pay attention to this word. Every single one of you who are indwelt by God's Spirit, you have to hear this. You're not past the potential. This needs to be heard by Spirit indwelt people. There is a warning that those who fall away cannot be restored again. This means you, dear brother, dear sister, have to take serious your faith. This pushes us again. That's why I love what Hebrews is doing. It's constantly pushing us out of this passive obedience, passive delight, passive joy. And it says, God's people are serious about following me. God's people are serious about growing into maturity. God's people are serious about evangelism and loving and serving and exercising my gifts. God's people are serious people. Now, serious does not, don't hear me when I say serious, like, mm, stoic. Because I think that sometimes when we think serious, is this stoic. No, serious, the opposite of serious is what? Joking. How do you pursue God? Oh, he loves me no matter what. That's not what Hebrews seems saying. That's not what faith is like. It's not this joking little mentality that we take seriously our pursuit of God. So it's important we think he's speaking to believers because it makes us take this moment serious right now. So what is it that's at stake? What is it that's at stake for these believers in this text and for you today? Well, that if you fall away or commit apostasy... It's impossible for you to be restored. Wow. So what's at stake for you listening right now? First off, what is this falling away? What is this idea of apostasy? Well, falling away or apostasy is is that you once believed in God, that you once clung to Him, trusted Him with both confession and with life of obedience, but then you just no longer believe. You kind of just, you know, He's not all that He cracked up to be. It's it's letting go of the faith. It's turning away from God. And the author gives us the reasons that you cannot be restored. Look there with me at why. In verse 6. It says you have fallen away from this to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm. And holding him up to contempt or to shame. This idea of since they are crucifying God once again. See, those who abandon the Son of God cannot be reconverted all over again, for that would be re-crucifying Christ. Does that make sense? So it's saying, oh, Jesus has saved me, he's reborn, I'm, I'm, I'm believe, and then 10, 15, 12, two years down the road, you're like, ah, I don't believe all that. He didn't really die for me. And then you're going to go back and re-crucify him again by saying, I've turned? He's saying, that's an impossibility, right? And not only that, but you're putting him to shame. That you're saying there's something else actually better out there. And you're shaming him. You're mocking him. Just like the people that were there. And and the book of Hebrews right now is saying this is an impossibility. And according to the analogy too. Look at 7 and 8. So he uses an analogy for us here. 
An analogy to help us understand. He says, what's at stake? Those who fall away will be cursed and burned. Judgment for those who fall away. This idea of burned is he's picking back up on language, especially of Deuteronomy, where, where the land would be burned because it was worthless. It was no good. That ultimately you will stand before God apart from Christ and eternal judgment and you will be judged. So what's at stake for the believers here? Eternal judgment. Eternal judgment is at stake for these people. Do you hear why it's so important we understand what he's saying? Do you hear why we can't just toss out assurance like it's candy? Well, you were baptized. Well, you were, uh, you prayed a prayer of repentance. He says, no, are you growing in Christ? Growing in Christ is learning to walk in wisdom, discerning right from wrong and choosing right, moving on from the, what he calls the elementary principles or doctrines of Christ. This is a strong warning before you and me today. And I want you to feel the weight of this. Eternity is at stake. Your eternity is at stake. Which leads you to the question, and I know all of you are asking this. I didn't think a believer could lose their salvation. Right? I mean, that's where all immediately thinking, we're, we're, most of us born and raised in the South, and once saved, always saved. Is this truth we hear, and this language thrown around, and there's truth in lots of this, but here's what I want to do. So the question we have to ask this text, and here's where we gotta do some thinking, alright? So engage your minds, Holy Spirit help. You have to ask this question. The person in the text appears to be at every phase a person who is born again. Yes. And that if they fall away or commit apostasy, they cannot be restored to repentance again. Yes. And they will be judged on the final day. Yes. But is the author merely making a declaration or simply offering a warning? Do you see the difference in the two? Is he saying there will be some whom this happens to? Or is he simply saying, be warned. Be warned. There's denominations that, that will place all of their, that you can lose your salvation based on a text like this. But we have to understand, we have to understand all of the warning texts together, right? They're meant to be read together in unison with one another. And what he's doing here is, I don't think he's making a declaration of, there will be some who will lose their salvation. He's not. And the reason I think this is the, is the illustration he uses. Look at 7 and 8 again. He says, For the land that has drunk the rain that often fail, uh, falls on it and produces a crop useful for those whose forsake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if... Now we've heard if already. A couple warning passages before. He said what? If. It's a conditional clause, right? It's this idea that there's a condition there. He says, and if it bears thorns and thistles, now pay attention to this language here, it is worthless, and look at the word here, and near to being cursed. I think this near word is the pivotal word for us, because near, when you think near, like right now I'm near the pulpit, right? I'm in proximity with location. But near can also be used as a time word. A temporal word is the fancy way of saying it. What do I mean by a time word? It's like I'm near the pulpit location, or I can say I'm near to the time of the end of my sermon. I'm getting closer to that end, closer to that line where something's going to happen. 
And I'm arguing that it's a time idea from, from multiple ways and locations. And we'll, we'll get more into this ne- uh, next week. But this means that what it's saying, this, this illustration he's using of the land, is that if your life is dominated by weeds, you are almost about to fall away. And you know what happens to people fall away? They cannot be restored. Be warned! Stop playing games with your faith. Be warned! You're close to the edge. Be warned. And here's the amazing thing. And here's what you need to understand about God and what his word does. It produces the very thing that it demands. Here's what I mean by that. This is the way God is preserving his people. He warns them. And by his verbal warning, both in Hebrews and by our verbal warnings to each other, when it's tied to God's word, is the very way he preserves us. It's the very way he guarantees that we will make it to the end. And again, is this declaring this to be true or warning people? I'm making an argument. He's just warning people here. And in this warning, God is producing the steadfastness to make it to the end. God's words bring about the very thing that he desires. I'll try and give you a few examples to help us think about this. If Shelly wants me to take out the garbage, right? She might say, Josh, the garbage is full. Yeah, it's full. She's just merely giving me facts, right? Her words didn't produce an action behind them. Does it make sense? She was just declaring something to be true, though. Trash is full. Thanks. It is, babe. Yep, it's actually spilling over a little bit. Or this. Josh, will you take the garbage out? Her words are now doing what in me? Producing some type of an action. This is how God's words are. When he speaks something, it produces the very thing that he says must be produced. And right here he's saying, be warned, don't fall away. So guess what's going to be produced in spirit and dwell people? They're not going to fall away. Why? Because they're going to run and consider Jesus. In the present moment, they're going to remember him. He's going to produce it. Here's another one. How many of you believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation? That he is completely in control of those who are saved? Yes. It's in the scriptures. But he uses a way for that to happen. So how many of you just sit back with hands in your pockets because everybody's just going to come to know the Lord? No, he said what? I use people who use words about Jesus. And I take those words out of Josh's mouth to his neighbor. Who after eight years I finally can have an extended conversation with. And he's taking those words, and I'm not saving them, but God is through my words. He's producing the very thing in this man, belief. The words here of this warning are like a life jacket around God's people, keeping us safe and preserving us to the end. Because they are producing in us a desire to keep going. So my question, church, is are you hearing the words to be warned? Don't fall away. And that's what I love about God's word. Because I can preach this with full confidence. Knowing the spirit that indwells you, God's people. You are warned in this moment. And you will heed these words. But it also... Helps me understand the weight of pastoral care. 
that part of my job and Pastor David's job is to look at you square in the eyes and say, are you growing? And if you're not, be warned. Be warned. And I say this because we love you, because we desire for you to grow in these things. And your knowledge of God and your ability to, to discern and practice wisdom so that you can choose between good and evil on a daily basis. So we see the second part of his argument here. First one, he rebukes them. Guys, you're, you, you should be teachers by now, but you're not. And he calls them to maturity. And what happens if you don't mature? He says there's this warning that if you fall away, you will not be restored again. And this warning is producing the very thing in the church in this moment. He's saying it's birthing steadfastness and confidence and trust and growth in God's people. And we'll see this unfold for us. But let's look very quickly at verse 9. We'll finish here. It says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we are sure of better things that belong to your salvation. This is where it gets really sweet. But he begins to encourage them and assure them of who God is. That is their God. But that doesn't negate the fact that right now in this text today, he's warning us. He's warning you to ask yourselves, are you growing? Or are you playing games? Don't play games. Pursue maturity. Three closing exhortations. This morning, where do you find your assurance? Where is your assurance? Because one of the things Hebrews is doing is with the two-edged sword of God's word, it is chopping down all the false assurances that you've built up in your life. Chopping them down and it's giving you solid footing that is Christ. Are you pursuing God every day as long as it's called today? Are you actively pursuing Jesus and growing in daily wisdom, which is the ability to discern good from evil and walk in that which is good? Second exhortation is that there is gravity to our following of God. There is earnestness that we all must display, that we want not only ourselves to grow maturity, but I want you to look to your left and your right. Those people beside you, you also must want to grow. And we give of ourselves to each other so that we grow in Christ. This is not the only place that growth happens is behind the pulpit. This is like a springboard for the rest of the week, for the rest of the months. Church, if we want to grow, we've got to be in each other's lives. Speaking truth. Calling us to obedience. The value of real relationship within the body of Christ is essential so that you don't Allow these warnings to go unheard. Lastly, don't fool yourself because you think you know doctrine that you're mature. If you're not practicing wise living based on these good truths every day. This takes time. Meditation, consideration, conversation with each other. With us as pastors, with your neighbor about what is it to walk with the discerning spirit. Finally, brothers, let me just remind us of the scriptures that he who began a good work, he'll see it through. And one of the ways he's seen it through is to warn you 
right now. Let's pray. Father, take your words now. Thanks for listening in to today's message. For more information about our church, feel free to visit us at calvarybcmoultrie.com. We hope you will join us again next time. Until then, grace and peace.